is creating a little bit of a problem. Um, and uh, Cindy Monius uh, took it upon herself to call the li library at Gadsden, Alabama for his address. So I'll write his address up here because obviously anybody that stands up to the ACLU and everybody else is going to get dumped on. And if you don't do anything, at least pray for the guy. But here's his... Uh, That's one pencil that won't work. Judge Roy Moore, eight hundred Forest Avenue. Etoa Courthouse, Gadsden, Alabama, three five nine zero one. You want to pay attention to things like this. This may be a little incident in a far off town, but. It involves principle, and uh, <clears throat> it's it's the principle is heavily involved with what we're talking about here with this area of the law. So tonight, when we when we go through this material, keep in mind that it's this sort of thing that's going to crop up with increasing frequency in the United States because we are fighting this very issue as a nation right now, and the question is, somebody's values will prevail. Somebody's values will prevail. The question is going to be, whose? Shall we bow for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you once again for the gift of your revelation to us, that we did not earn it, we did not deserve it, but you saw fit to initiate a personal relationship with a fallen race. And you therefore spoke to us in grace, giving us a Savior and pointing us to him for our so great salvation. We thank you for that salvation tonight and ask that you would illuminate our hearts to your greatness seen through your mighty acts of history. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, if you'll turn to page 63 in the notes, uh, we're going to just review here for a few minutes. Um, we're going to review a Mount Sinai event and as a little memory drill keep in mind once again that all of these events that we study are pictures of great truths of scripture and you'll be ahead of 90% of believers just to know these events and um, to be able to think through what God did in each of these events, which is basically what the theology is, what those doctrines are. It's just, they're just um, great truths that God wants us to know about himself and his works and his promises. But these events are where he showed himself. And the key thing to keep in mind again and again is that this is not private religious opinion. This is public global revelation.
And paganism has as its agenda always, everywhere, to suppress this. See, we're living uh, in Wisconsin, a very dark and bleak world, which has an aim behind it. Things aren't neutral out there. We're living in enemy territory, and we're naive and stupid if we really don't become aware of that. We're in a war, and the stuff is flying all around us. And the center of action is to make these events disappear from human memory, to suppress them, to distort them. And there are different techniques that we've studied uh, over, the, over the years, so we've worked with them. Uh, the creation, the fall, and the flood, and the covenant, of course. Uh, we want to completely blot that history out on a pagan basis. And the call of Abraham, the Exodus, and Mount Sinai represent another kind of threat to the pagan mind because these events stress God's interference in history. And the fact that God has to interfere means that history is abnormal because it's fallen. And so, therefore, history is not normative, and you can't do statistical studies in Gallup polls getting a mean of the distribution of the statistical sample that you've done and call that mean a normal. That mean is nothing but a normal of the abnormal. And that's what it, and that's, so we have to think that through. And that has implications, has all kinds of implications. So today, we're going to, tonight we're going to go hit this event once again. We've looked at the pictures, we've surveyed the terrain, we know what it looked like, uh, we've skimmed a little bit of the text. Hopefully you've had a chance to read Exodus 19 and 20 and, and some of those uh, sections. And on page 63, what I did there was to show you the parallels between the way the Mosaic Law Code is formatted over against the treaties that were made in the ancient Near East. These treaties were, were documents that made or defined a relationship between kings. So the idea there was that you had uh, a great king who had subdued a lesser king or entered into some sort of a relationship with him, and this king defined the relationship, and the relationship was in this covenant, or what we call a treaty, treaty covenant. So the covenant, once again, is a yardstick of behavior. It outlines and is a standard of how these both parties of the covenant ought to behave. Now, why do we make mention of this? Because right from this point forward, we want to stress that the way the Bible speaks of law is not the way society speaks of law. And the pagan mind and the Christian mind are at odds over what law is all about. And that we want to think this through because the New Testament is basically rules and regulations also. So you never get away from law. And in societies filled with laws too. So we went through each of these six last time. We, we showed you this functions to each one of these six parts. And then we conclude on the top of page 64 that the Sinai legislation in defining this relationship parallels the, the treaty covenants because Yahweh, God, has a relationship with the tribes. That's the analogy. And the point is that there's a personal relationship that exists here. So therefore, the content of the law 
has personal address in it. Do this. Most law codes aren't that at all. If you look at most law codes, in fact, part of the Mosaic law code, you'll see if this, then this. If so-and-so does this, then this is what happens. If so-and-so does this, then this is what happens. So-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. It's all if, then, if, then, if, then. That's the format. But woven into that in the scriptures, there's Jehovah says, I tell you, I want you to circumcise your hearts. I say to you that you will come before me and worship me. You will bring your sacrifices before me. There's a personal conversation going on mixed in with the if-thens. So, why do we stress this? Because the law is defined in terms of a personal relationship. And that isn't so in, a, in a, just a bare, naked law code. And we want, we're going to run with this a little bit tonight because this is a certain implication that falls out of this whole point. It's a fundamental assumption. So yeah, you want to asterisk that paragraph where it says, uh, it is more of a treaty that defines a relationship between Jehovah or Yahweh and His Son. Remember we said, the nation is referred to as my son, Exodus 4. Out of Egypt if I call my son. Now we, of course, know that the greater fulfillment is in Christ. So... What's happening is that Jehovah reigns and it's the nature of a personal relationship and the nature of the personal relationship has another feature to it. So let's analyze this just a little bit so we get background for, for this law code. Because it's coming and we want to make sure we understand what law is. Jehovah is God. So here we have Jehovah and man. The creator creature. Jehovah, we studied has, uh, before, has certain attributes. He is sovereign. He is holy. Uh, he is omniscient. He's loving. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's immutable. He's eternal. God has those attributes. Those are absolute characteristics. Man is made in God's image as a theomorph, and he has analogs to those attributes. We'll complete the box because in man's case he's finite. In God's case we leave the box open to indicate he's infinite and can't be bounded by human discourse. Now, what's the analogy in man's life to this? To sovereignty. What faculty do we have that corresponds to God's sovereignty? Choice or will. What faculty in the human corresponds to God's holy character. What is it that's a, sort of a, a receiver that's tuned to that in every man's heart? Conscience. So man has a conscience. What corresponds in man's heart to God's omniscience? Our desire to know and think. So our, our, the human knowledge base. And of course love corresponds to God's love. And this is the spiritual nature and the personal nature of man. Now, here's the problem. If God reveals the law, it's coming out of this character and it's talking to that character. Okay? That's the law in Scripture. Let's think about this for a minute. God is the lawgiver at Mount Sinai. If God is the lawgiver then the law expresses His holiness, expresses His knowledge of all things, 
and is also given with the attribute of love. It's not, law isn't given out of hatred. The law was given out of genuine love because it's the constitution of the kingdom of God. Now, what happens if man tries to mimic this relationship? See what we're getting at? If man tries to rule over man and create some sort of quote law, what is the difference between this product and this product? Let's think about that, because that's the heart of the issue here. If God is the one who is giving the law, the law comes out of omniscience and absolute holiness, sovereignty, power, love, and immutability as the Creator. If man tries to make law, what are his, his capacities? They're finite. In particular, let's look at this one. Knowledge. How can man design legislation that is wise? What is the weakness that all men have when it comes to trying to design a piece of legislation? Limited knowledge. Let me give you an example from my area. Congress and the state legislatures in this country have been uh, under pressure from Audubon Society and from uh, Greenpeace and from Sierra Club and everybody else to enact environmental regulations. And some of that's good. I mean, we have neglected the environment. But like everything else, it becomes a sacred crusade and becomes extremist. And one of the great examples of this is that we're seeing the Congress legislate something called the Clean Air Act. And then the Clean Air Act says that every community will meet a certain level of the ozone content and so forth, or the, and the various products out of, come out of that. And if you as a community don't meet those Clean Air Act standards, we are going to penalize you. And here's how we're going to penalize the whole community. We're going to restrict the commuting miles and time that you have in your cars. This is one penal thing that can happen. We will say that uh, we have to reduce commuting man hours by 20% because we're going to reduce the noxious pollutants and so on, noxious gases, and that's the way we decide to do it because automobiles are the biggest thing of that and so forth and so on. What was obviously missing from this brilliant piece of legislation was the fact that you can't prove that if you have ozone in Baltimore, it came from Baltimore. But the penalties are applied to a municipality. Well, nobody thought of the fact there's something called wind that blows from point A to point B. So how do you prove that ozone in, say, Baltimore came from Baltimore? You can't. And we were involved in some things. Some of the power companies got together and put a lot of money in a big pocket, did a lot of research. I was involved in it for two years. And what we found out was that every night in the summertime when certain things are right, there's a, a wind that starts about 100 meters above the ground. It's about 20 or 30 miles an hour. And what it's doing, it's just scouring out all the pollution from Washington and Virginia, sweeping it along the seaboard all the way up to Massachusetts. Now, excuse me. Now, tell me now which community is to blame for it. It's a whole region. So anyway, that's a, it's my favorite example of a group of lawyers 
who write this stuff before they know what it is they're writing. And this goes on and on and on. So, once we have man generating law, we're in a dangerous position because he is stupid. And in the Bible, God and God alone generates law. Think about this. From the day that we were in fifth or sixth grade, we learned there were three functions of government. The executive, the judiciary, and and the uh, legislative. Now, in Israel, who was the executive? Later on, who was the one person who really led the country? The king. Before him, the elders. Remember Joe's up here, the elders of Israel? That's the executive branch. You read passage after passage in the Old Testament. It talks about how to hold courts, laws of evidence, penalties for crimes. What's that addressed to? The courts. That's the judiciary. Now, question. Where's the legislative? Why in this nation of Israel do you have one-third of it missing? Why is one-third of the function of Israel's government missing in the Bible? I don't read anything about a senate. I don't read anything about House of Representatives. I don't read anything about a parliament. I don't read anything about that at all. Why is it missing? The serious reader of Scripture, if you're going to read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you think while you're reading, you should say, well, wait a minute. What's What's the analog to this function? Certainly they function as a nation. Where did the law come from? We know where it came from. It came from Mount Sinai. There's no question about what the legislation was. So it's interesting, right off the bat, as you look and it gets back to this way of thinking about Scripture that I want to stress, when you look at these events, take the center of that event and, and squeeze it, just like an orange to get all the juice out of it. Now just think about this Mount Sinai event. Why did God choose to intervene most prominently at the legislative level and back off and let man do the executive and the judicial. There's a reason for that. And this is not to say that obviously Gentile nations shouldn't have bodies of legislation. But what is it to say? It is to say that when man makes his laws, it would be kind of smart if he mimicked God's laws. So, that's the, that's the whole point that we've made. And now as we come into, uh, on page 64, I, I have three nouns there. Values, ethics, and law. And I tie all those three together. And a lot of people say, whoa, wait a minute. Those are three different nouns and they mean three different things. That's correct. Values are things that people hold to. Personal values. Um, ethics, the sta- study of standards in society or what standards should be. And then law defines what has been enacted. You could have uh, beliefs, couldn't you, like this? You could have, if you think about it for a minute, in our society, here's the problem. We have laws here and we have different people with different values Say, this is one set of values over here, values one, values two, values three, and so forth. These are values of different groups that are all mixing together in the legislative branch of government and we're cranking out legislation trying to blend all that stuff together. And that's the, that's the chaos in the law code. And it's going to happen as long as you have sinners 
uh, who come from different perspectives. That's all. I mean, it's the doom of, of autonomous man. Man has chosen not to live in the kingdom of God, and therefore we don't enjoy... God didn't make a constitution with the United States. We do not enjoy a legislative branch direct from God. We don't have that. So this is the problem that we have with our laws. But what I want to see tonight is that the values here are separate from the laws here. But in the Bible, the laws, the values, and the ethics all come together in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So those four books after Genesis, right here in the front of your Bible, link these three nouns together. It's able to link those three nouns together because God, who is the author of all three of them, knows what he's doing. And when he talks about law, and this is going to, now what we want to look at is, is this word. We're going to concentrate primarily on law tonight. The nature of law. Because it is different if you look at it from the Bible point of view versus the pagan point of view. And so we want to stress, just like we talked about biology, we talked about geology, we talked about astronomy, and now we're in the field of law. I told you when we started this, when we get done, there isn't one area that we haven't deeply and profoundly offended because we're going against everything that is taught in each one of these fields. And I'm sorry, I didn't write the Bible, but I, you know, I just read it. So, we come now to the biblical view of law. We've already given the background why God speaks and man listens. On page 63, paragraph before, paragraph number two there, pagan view, the last one, let me summarize that, you follow with me. On a biblical basis, then, ethics, values, law come from above the, quote, provincial and the transient. Who said that? Remember we quoted that last week? The provincial and the transient. Remember those words? They came from a U.S. Supreme Court justice who went to temporary duty to Nuremberg, Germany in 1945 to be one of the jurists at the Nuremberg trials. And what did he conclude when he had to face the attorneys that were defending the Nazis? Here you had the line of the SS Corps, Goebbels, for example, sitting there in the courtroom. And the attorneys that defended the Nazis argued that you cannot prosecute Nazis because the Nazis were simply following official policies, weren't they? Of course they were. They made the policies. They were enforcing the policies. Did you kill Jews for the sake of motherhood, Mother Germany? Of course you did. You got to get rid of and genocidally remove all the scumbags from society, thought the Germans. So you get rid of gypsies, handicapped children, and Jews. And that way you can purge the nation and have a euthanasia type thing and uh, uh, eugenics rather type purification of the country. So, were they or were they not wrong by German law? And the answer is no. They could not be convicted on the basis of German law. So now how do you convict them? To what standard do you hold them responsible to if it's not German law? Well, this is a tough question. This was a profound question. And in 1945, the only way the world could bring conviction to the SS people was to say, above Germany's law, there stands a higher law. And we will convict those men in terms of that higher law. 
But that law wasn't written down. That law wasn't the United States Constitution. That wasn't the laws of the British Parliament. That wasn't Spanish or French law. It wasn't Italian law. What was this law? Where's this law? Because remember, what Justice uh, Jackson said was that if you convict on the basis of these laws, these laws are all provincial and transient. Now, let's think of those words. What did he mean when he said they're provincial? That adjective, he used that to qualify German law as he would American law, English law, Spanish law, Italian law. It's all provincial. What does he mean by provincial? Limited in space. Limited to a country. The legislation, by definition, applies only to the country for which it was written. Therefore, it is provincial. And then Justice Jackson said in qualified law by saying it is also transient. What did he mean by that? What did he mean that human legislation is transient? What happens to human legislation if you live more than 10 years? It changes. You've got to do something to keep the whole legal community in business, so you change the law so everybody has to reinterpret everything. So, you, so the human law is transient. So it's provincial and transient. Well, if it's provincial and transient, once you admit these, you defend the Nazis, don't you? Because after 1933, Hitler changed the law. Transient. Sorry. Jeez, you know? That's just the law of, of, you know, that's Tuesday's law. And I killed somebody on Tuesday. It's okay. Wednesday we changed the law and it's wrong. But you can't convict me if I murder somebody on Tuesday and that was the law on Tuesday. And then I go out and I don't kill them on Wednesday because Wednesday we got a new law now. Now this, of course, is stupid. We all smile at this. But folks, this is the dilemma of the non-Christian. If we don't have the Bible, see, we're all used to as Christians saying, oh, gee, you know, we've got to defend our faith and we're the poor little people and all these other guys got all the answers and their system seems so strong and we're just kind of plodding along here by faith and we're the weak ones. No, no. Get away with that. You're the strong ones. It's the unbelieving people trapped in a darkness that are the real fools. This is really foolish. Because on a human basis, all you can ever generate is something that is provincial and transient. And when you come to something like 1945 and the Nazi Germany, you grope around trying to find something. And so here all the great judges of the world said, gee, what are we going to do to convict these guys? Well, we've got to grab at some transcendental imaginary law. We all come out feeling our hearts that it was wrong to kill Jews, gypsies, and handicapped kids. So, we feel that way, and so, by golly, shoot Goebbels. Put him in jail forever. You didn't do that on the basis of law. You did that on the basis of how you felt. But what, from the Christian point of view, what did we say was true of man, every man, including the jurists that lined that trial, including all the witnesses to the trials, what was in all of them we know biblically that corresponds to God's holiness? Every one of those people in that courtroom had a conscience. So they all knew that it was wrong to do that. And really, so did the Nazis. And by convicting the Nazis of that atrocities, they were affirming that all men have a conscience. And that all men deep down in their heart know very well what is right and what is wrong. 
Now we come to the pagan view of law. So let's look at that for a moment. If you'll read through this with me, I'll quickly read through it and then we'll get to some uh, where this leads us. We're going to discover something interesting out of this. And we're going to go, by the way, to the New Testament for explanation. The pagan mind of flesh began when Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When he tried to become, and notice this, you might mark this. When Adam ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, he became or attempted to become his own moral authority. Once the pagan mind has suppressed consciousness of its derivative created nature and the inherent authority of God, now here's the key, it is left in complete vanity when it tries to build values, ethics, and law. That's the dilemma of the non-Christian. Where does he get these? We know where he gets them because of his conscience. But in his view, he's only a pile of atoms and molecules that burped up from a gas one day. Now, out of this come values, ethics, and law. This is really... I have to go to college and get two advanced degrees to, to really learn that now and pay $50,000 in tuition. So he is left in complete vanity when he tries to build values, ethics, and law. Man just cannot build absolute values on the basis of a limited experience and reason, even in innocence. Now, look at this. Even in innocence, Adam needed God's Word to interpret his environment properly and know which trees to eat and which not to. Didn't God tell him there were certain trees not to eat? Was that pro If God told him that, do you suppose, and the text doesn't tell this, this is an exercise in imagination, what do you think? You think if God hadn't told Adam and Eve not to eat that tree over there, that it would have been intuitively obvious for them not to eat of the tree over there? They're in innocence now, no sin around. Now, isn't this remarkable? In a sinless environment, it is essential that God define things. Now, if that's true in a sinless environment, how much more is it needful in a sinful environment for God to define things? Because now, with my eyes open as a sinless person, as an Adam before the fall, I can see pretty well out there. But even though I think I can see pretty well, there are things I can't see and He tells me what I can't see. Now I'm fallen and I'm walking around blind and I sure need some guidance then. So it's a tremendous argument that even the sinless, innocent man needs legislation. He needs external compasses. He needs an external dictation of what the will of God is, at least at some points. It's not all intuitive to a sinless person. Then what happens, now here's something neat that comes out of pagan, because what we're learning here is how pagans think and it's how our flesh thinks. It's really, we're learning about our own depraved hearts. But um, we want to notice something. At this point, there's a fork in the road. And paganism has to do one of two things, and it always does one of these two things. And it bounces back and forth between these two things like a yo-yo, and you can see tendencies in your own heart. The first tendency, the first paragraph begins with paganism, page 65. Paganism, therefore, runs in one of two directions. One way is to deny traditional values and redefine good and evil to call evil good, publicly approving unethical behaviors. Open your Bibles to Romans 1, 32. Now, if there was a law, legal society in the ancient world, it was Rome. 
So it's ironic, therefore, that Paul addresses the precise group in the ancient world known for their laws, the Romans, with these words. Verse 32 of chapter 1. These people, he says, unbelievers, us, apart from the grace of God, although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now look at that last clause in verse 32. What does that mean legislatively? What do you think that means? If you really think verse 32 is correct, and you really think that way, how would that influence your legislation? If you were the lawmakers, what would you do if you thought that way? Let's read that again. Not only do they do these things, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, would you therefore start massaging the law here to say evil is good and good is evil? This is perversity. And perversity in law comes naturally to paganism. It has to design perverted law because the heart from which it comes is perverted. So this is why today, there's no thing, you know, if Hawaii wants to declare homosexual marriages or, you know, the next thing we'll be killing people, you know, that's getting to be thing because after all, I mean, it seems right in our own eyes. And we'll call good evil and evil good. So, the one thing that paganism tries to do, following the, in my paragraph there, this tactic, and this is, this is the psychology behind it. We've got to understand why do we sinners think this way? There's a dynamic, a spiritual dynamic in our hearts that causes this. And we still fight it as Christians. This tactic appears to relieve the pressure of the conscience. By, by saying to my conscience, this is right. And I say it to it, this is right. This is right. And I get 550 people saying, this is right. What am I trying to do to my conscience? I'm trying to override my conscience. So law becomes a tool. Peer pressure becomes a tool. A tool to override my, my conscience and wreck it. And it's called hardening the heart. It's called putting a callus in the conscience. New Testament has a lot of names to it. We are going to label this option, this direction, the pagan mind, to licentiousness. This is the licentious option. Licentiousness perverts standards, twists them. Typically, it is the choice of those who despise reason and tend toward depression. The result is always chaos and social breakdown. But there are certain types of people that gravitate to this. And at certain times in our age. And in fact, if you think about your own flesh, you'll see there are areas in your life where you tend to do this. I tend to do this. We have zones in our horizon where we tend to be licentious. Now, the opposite reaction starts setting in in chapter 2 there. The next verse is the opposite one, and that's legalism. So paganism goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between these two things, and neither one of them is right. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, now he's getting to the legalistic counterpoint to this, Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who pass judgment, for, now notice, passes judgment. 
See that verb, pass judgment or judge? That answers to verse 32 of approve. So you might just point, see the two verbs corresponding? In verse 32, the licentious option approves evil. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it judges evil. So, in verse 1, it looks like it's pretty good because legalism at least recognizes there are rights and there are wrongs and it doesn't matter. So, we have this tendency uh, to be legalistic. But, here's the problem, and, 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 and by the way, think about the results of this. The licentious option always leads to what? Eventually, social breakdown, chaos. So, since the licentious option always leads to chaos then what is it that becomes the threat? Here, here the man of the flesh is. He wants to go out and raise hell. But he finds out after three or four weeks that he's, there's wreckage all over the place. Boy, there's consequences to this stuff. Now what's the threat? What does that do in the psychology of, of the flesh? I'm threatened by the debris, by the chaos I've created. Why does that threaten me? What is true of the flesh man, deep in his heart, deep in the heart of every man who knows not Christ? Does he have security? Does man apart from God have security? No. Why doesn't he have security? Because he, he deep, we're at the most deep level, we know that we're offensive to God. This is a very insecure position to be if I walk around the universe knowing that the grand creator of this universe is at odds with me. I got a big problem. And I want to forget my big problem. And most of all, I want security. So what did Adam and Eve do three seconds after they fell? They were naked and they started building clothes for themselves. They, it was a form of security here. A cover-up going on, literally. And what happened uh, in pagan religion? You have the same kind of things. You have all these demonic practices that go on. Why? Because they like the demonic practices? No. It's because they fear. They fear. And they want somehow to placate whatever this force is out there. So, there's a cry for security. So, uh, so, there's a cycle here. You go to licentiousness. Chaos breeds frustration. Chaos says, okay, now I want the opposite of chaos. I want order. But how do I get order? I go into legalism. The failure leads to a second pagan attempt in the opposite direction. Since paganism has no ultimate security, it cannot long tolerate chaos, and should be to secure security, should be to attain security for itself. It reverts to imposing law upon surrounding society to keep some semblance of order. That's Romans 2. The tactic offers another attempt to relieve pressure of conscience, and this is the legalistic approach. Typically, it is the choice of those who elevate reason. Oh, we've got to have, I have this great vision of this orderly society. See? Reasoning it out. You know who was the big guy in the Western civilization that did this, wrote a big book that affected political thought for 2,400 years? He's a guy who used to be read in English classes before we started reading Ernest Hemingway. Plato wrote the book called The Republic. 
and he was a failed Greek politician, and so he retreated into his little monastery and he started thinking. What was the ideal society? And he called the ideal society the Republic, wrote the book about it, and he became the great political philosopher. So, it, this, that legalistic approach tends to be favored by those who elevate reason and tend toward optimism. The result, however, is usually embarrassing failure and declining hope. And the problem over here is what? What is the limitations of man? When we started out tonight, remember we said, when man tries to do his thing, he doesn't have these attributes, he has these. So when man, who has these attributes, tries to do something that only the Creator can do, which is what he's trying to do here in legalism, what eventually is going to happen? Well, what eventually is going to happen is personal failure. What does Paul, in verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 of Romans chapter 2, what is his critique of the legalistic person? He says, you are without excuse also. Because you pass what you judge in another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, you do the same things. What can you, anybody phrase what Paul's critique is of the, of the pagan tendency toward legalism. It produces a body of law, it produces values, but what's its weakness? According to Paul. I'm doing all this, I'm saying, you guys do this, you guys do that, you guys do this. What's the weakness? I'm not doing it. And later in Romans, he goes on to say why he can't do it. Remember the cry in Romans 7? Oh Lord, it's not in me to do it. So do you see now, this is a serious dilemma of, of the flesh. And when we're out of it, we go oscillate back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, between, on the one hand, the tendency to say the heck with it and go into a kind of a chaotic depression, overthrow everything. And then we wallow around in that for a while and don't like it. And then we come out, well, I'm going to have order. Boom. And we do this for a while. And then that doesn't work. So then we come back over here. Well, apart from the grace of God, a person who is a non-Christian has no home. He only has these tendencies back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. No one of the guys frustrated and worn out. Now, let's come back to 1 Samuel 16. We want to go stress uh, an interesting thing that happened uh, between Samuel and one king. And I, I take you to this passage because in context, perfect passage in context, I think it's 16. Okay, verse 7, 1 Samuel 16. This is picking out a political leader. And... Samuel has been sent by God, so you can conceive of Samuel, if you want to visualize this, as God himself, as the Lord Jesus Christ. And Samuel stands as a representative of the Lord, and he approaches the next king of Israel. And he makes this significant point. The Lord said to Samuel, because the Lord's coaching Samuel on the choice, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. 
Uh, he, see, he, he looked at this guy and he, he failed the qualification. Now, here's the key. God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the... All right. When God gave the law at Mount Sinai and it was done His way, what was it addressed to and by whom? It was addressed all the way down to the depths of our hearts by one who could see to the depths of our hearts. Therefore, the law at Mount Sinai is values, ethics, and legislation all wrapped up in one package because the perfect lawgiver is speaking his character through people that are like glass to him. And that's why he says, to obey me and follow me, you must circumcise your hearts. The law of the Old Testament is addressed to the heart. And we see this now if we come to Matthew, because Jesus had the problem in the Beatitudes. We had the problem that people... We're misinterpreting the law. Let's turn to the, to the famous Beatitude passage. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And it was addressed in a day, to a day, or to a people who had been taken over by Pharisees. Phariseeism. And the thing that the Pharisees did, we can do. In fact, we're seeing it done all the time. And the, what they had done was they had bureaucratized this great sacred law of the Old Testament. The law was addressed to the heart by the king of kings. They had taken it as amateur lawyers into regulations. Let me read you some of them. I read from a book called the Mishnah. This is a compilation of what the Pharisees taught in Jesus' day. why I call the modern-day bureaucracy just neo-Phariseeism all over again. Now listen to, listen to how stupid this is. This, I mean, these were the thought police walking around the society enforcing all this junk. An egg may not be put beside a kettle on the Sabbath so that it shall get cooked, nor may it be cracked with hot wrappings. See, somebody was real sneaky about how to do eggs. You put it just near the kettle, or you can take a hot wrapping and wrap the egg so you're not doing any work. So they had to legislate against the hot egg gimmick. But another rabbi, Rabbi Jose, permits this. Nor may it be buried in hot sand or the dust of the road so it gets roasted. So we had four ways that people were cooking their eggs on the Sabbath day without doing any work. I mean, these people were geniuses. And the Pharisees had to go around every time that some, you know, a new guy would go on the block, you know, he'd figure out a new way to do an egg on the Sabbath day, so they'd pass another law. So they have all these laws. Now this whole section is devoted on how to cook eggs. And we could go on and on and on. Uh, I mean, really, sometime when you want to laugh, you've got to go to the library and pull out the Mishnah. It's great background reading for the New Testament. It really is. But I, I won't stress that, but I won't want to take you to a passage in the New Testament where it led to a confrontation. So let's turn to Mark 2.23. Uh, the, the, I'm going to skip the Sermon on the Mount because we basically a lot of us who have been Christians for a while are kind of used to that. So I think it's clearer if I turn to uh, Mark 2. 
Mark 2.23. Now let's see if we can visualize this. Let's watch this one. It came about that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. His disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And what they're doing is just grabbing a grain, flicking it like this to get the grain off and eat it. Snacking. And the Pharisees, and the verb here is they kept saying to him. So they didn't say this once. They kept saying it over and over again. Oh, look at that guy. Oh, look at this guy. Oh, look at this guy. They probably had, you know, they had box lunches for themselves probably while it was going on. The Pharisees were kept saying to him, See, here, why are they not doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, by not lawful on the Sabbath, they meant this. This is the law that they were thinking about. It wasn't lawful somewhere in that place. I suppose you could find the grain passage. So, they had some rule and regulation, 108.5, paragraph 3, that said you couldn't flick grain in the field on the Sabbath day. So now, imagine now the, the scene. These guys are the lawyers. You know, I mean, they've been studying that thing ever since they've been 17. They know this place. You think you know your Bible? They quote this sucker. Now, this is, they're following Jesus around. They keep doing this. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. See, you're busting the law. You're busting this rag. You're busting this rag. Busting this rag. Excuse me. May I ask a question? Who are you accusing of breaking the regulations? Think of it. Who's being accused of breaking the regulations? The guy that gave them on Mount Sinai. So you'd kind of think that there's something wrong the way these guys are reading their Bibles. Something is wrong about how they're interpreting law. Isn't it? I mean, if you're so screwed up that you can take the guy that gave you the law and tell him he's busting it. He didn't know what he's doing, but you really know. You know that you're such an expert in the law. You tell him what he meant. That's what's going on. That's the irony of the scene in Mark 2. So he's going through the grain fields. The Pharisee keeps saying, Oh, but you didn't just, oh, hey, why are they doing that which is not lawful? Now, Jesus, in verse 25, gives them a little hint about how they ought to be interpreting Scripture. He says, You know, since you guys read, you ever check out what David did? when he was in need and became hungry. Now, that was slick. Because who was David? He was the king. And they all worshipped David. I mean, even Pharisees thought, boy, David, that was the last time of the golden age of Israel. Oh, yeah? Why don't you read his life, then? When you're over there in the Old Testament, try, try putting on David for a few chapters. Now, follow him. What did he do? When he was hungry, he went and he ate. He entered the house of God. Now, you think this bad to flip grain. What did David do? He ripped off the showbread because he wanted something to eat. How's that one for it? How does that fit? Does that violate Regulation 108.6? I better believe it does. Have you never read what David did when he was in need? He became hungry. He and his companions, he entered the house of God at the time of Bias of the high priest and, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he gave it to them who were with them? Now, what is Jesus getting at? Let's think through, lest we get drift into a licentious mode. He's not saying that the law is bad. But what has happened here? There's been a disconnect going on with the way these people look at the law. They are thinking of the law 
as a product of human people, they, they wouldn't say this, but what happens is when you get into this mode of thinking, law becomes a mechanical thing. It's like programming a computer or something. You know, I, I know basic. Boy, I'm going to make this thing sing. So I'm going to stick this program in a computer and I don't have to make any decisions. You know, I can go on autopilot the rest of my Christian life. Bing bong. Will of God for this. Will of God for this. And walk around. That's legislation. What, has, what have I done when I've done that? What have I done to my relationship with the Lord? See, what's happened here when, when this kind of concept of law happens is going back to this, I have made my knowledge separate from my conscience. The flesh wants to cover this thing up and put a big barrier around it so it doesn't get bothered by it. And once that happens, now I, I rely on knowledge. But the knowledge now has been severed away from its, of the conscience, and the conscience is what makes me aware of my, my recountability to God. Okay, now let's see another reaction that this happens once you get into this mode of thinking. Oh, and by the way, the conclusion. Verse 27, he was saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We could get into a lot there, but the idea here that I want to conclude with because of our time's running out is that once you get into paganism, you wind up with a seesaw going back and forth between licentiousness and legalism, licentiousness and legalism, and both are wrong. Because both of them is my attempt to live apart from a real personal relationship with the Lord. And that's why the Code of Hammurabi doesn't look like the Code of Moses. The Code of Hammurabi was made by Hammurabi. The Law of Moses was not made by Moses. It was made by the God of Moses who spoke that law all the way down to the depths of, of our hearts. Okay. Now, out of this comes, on page 66, and we must get you through here, or we're not going to be another week in this thing, uh, the, the, the thing that law always leads to is what Jesus pointed out here as he sp said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, is that if you have law in a biblical sense, it's given by someone and that someone is Lord. So lordship is always the presupposition of law because in law I'm responsible. Law is supposed to define right and wrong. I'm supposed to be responsible for right and wrong. Responsible to whom? Now, see the dilemma? What it, what, in a pagan fleshly attitude, what is the answer to the question, to whom am I responsible? When, when there's, a, there's a, the Harford County Building Code or uh, the State of Maryland's codes or uh, the federal law codes, when you're faced with those, to whom are you responsible? Responsible to society through its lawmaking agencies. But that's not scriptural. I mean, you are responsible for that, but only because God tells us to be responsible to that. We are ultimately responsible to Him and Him alone. That's real law. And that's what's lacking. So the nature of lordship is that lordship is the presupposition of law. You can't have biblical law without a lord behind that law with whom you have a personal relationship. So now we come to 
the, uh, and by the way, down the bottom, page uh, 66, was something on, I'm rushing here, but notice I, I go through the last sentence on page 66. I wanted to stop back when I was in Matthew for this. It's a good illustration. What, what mattered in the Pharisees' view was whether a murderer got caught. Remember the Beatitudes? Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not kill lest you be in danger of the court. You have heard it said from whom? From the Pharisees. So what was the motive not to kill somebody? What might happen to you? Go to jail. So the motive in, in the divorce, what was the issue in divorce? You can divorce, but you've got to have the right paperwork. So now we're talking about murder, but you don't murder because you're worried about you might go to jail. Uh, when you divorce your wife, your husband, don't sweat it as long as the paperwork's in order. You see what has happened here? Total disconnect between the spirit of the law in the first place. And that's the point that, that always happens. In other words, the lordship has gone away. So now we come in conclusion tonight, last four or five minutes, I want to deal just briefly, if you'll turn to John chapter 5, verse 44, I want to deal with this issue that's cropped up in the recent years in Christian circles between, we call uh, the two parties, you'll hear about them as uh, free grace and lordship salvation. You know, if we can't argue about something, we'll find another something to argue about so we can waste our energies that we should be devoting to evangelism and we can sit and have a fight inside the Christian camp. Free grace versus lordship, salvation. Both sides, I believe, are talking by one another. I really think there are good people on both sides and I think there are some true propositions in both sides of this equation. I don't think either, it's an either-or situation. I think it's a profound going like this. I happen to have friends, by the way, in both camps. What has happened here is the free grace people argue that you, when the gospel of salvation is drink of the waters of life freely. There's no conditions on there. It doesn't say dedicate your life, bow to God, and you're going to do great things. It just says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all these conditions in there. And to say anything else is to demand of an unbeliever that he has got to do something before he's worthy of salvation. That's the free grace people. And so they're emphasizing the grace part of it, of salvation. Now the Lordship people are saying, now wait a minute. Your guys are saying that a person can just receive Christ like eating an apple and go on the way unchanged. Add Jesus to the rest of your gods. So the Lordship people are saying this has got to be something a little bit more than, than that. Well, let's go back and see if we can get a hint on the solution. We'll talk about it more next week. If you look at those two events, Exodus and Sinai, think about it for a minute. Which event has something to do with salvation? And which event has to do with a revelation of lordship? And which comes first? Sinai, God didn't come to the Jews in Egypt and said, do, do, do this, and if you don't do this, I'm not going to save you. None of that. You don't see that. What do you do, do you see when God approaches the Jews while they're in Egypt? Not on Mount Sinai, while they're in Egypt. He says, I've heard you crying. I've heard, I see what a mess you're in. Follow me. Trust me, and I will deliver you. All I'm asking for you to do is trust me. 
There's no laws against homosexuality. There's no laws against stealing. There's no laws against any of that. None of that's in the invitation in the Exodus. It's not the law that's coming to them in Egypt, is it? It's that I have heard your sufferings and I invite you to come with me. But you're going to have to trust me. It's going to be scary, but you're going to have to trust me. Now when God gets them out in that desert that we saw on the slides, now he says, this is what I want you to do. I did one for something. Yeah, you owe me. So, here it is. Boom, 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 boom. And if you don't do it, bam. That's lordship. So, right away, before we get into more of it next week a little bit, but my idea pointing to you is how handy it is to know these events. Because the events themselves balance your theology. They keep you from drifting into weirdo things. Just think through which comes first, Sinai or Exodus. We can't argue that God's just an add-on in Exodus either, by the way. Because they had to trust. And then when we get out in the desert, it's not an issue that they're going to hold on to their salvation. Because remember, even in the cursings section of the law, if you read those cursing sections, ultimately, I will bring the nation of Israel back together again. Israel's never lost because of disobedience. God works in their heart through many trials and tribulations, but the nation will never, ever be destroyed. Once saved, always saved. Through tribulation, oh yeah. Some pretty nasty stuff, oh yeah. But is Israel saved in the end? Of course she is. So there's salvation, and then there's this issue of my relationship, once saved, with the Lord. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you do provide for us and that you, in addition to providing a perfect salvation with the blood atonement of Christ, you also keep after us and badger us as a father does his sons. Not because you hate us, not because you want to be cruel, but because you love us enough to want to see us truly repented in every area of our life and looking to you and to you alone. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Um, someone handed me an um, article. It's kind of interesting. Kind of goes back to what we are talking about with uh, right after Noah, the civilization of um, uh, that, that occurred right after the... Um, Flood, and um, in Ohio, discovering these strange uh, formations in the in the ground, great symbols of serpents, and apparently even the base of a pyramid in the Ohio Valley. And of course, you know you see this stuff all the time. And for 50 years, you walk into a classroom and they teach North American history like they know everything. Oh, we got this stuff aced out to the third decimal place. And so, you know, you just kind of grow up in that kind of an environment where you feel, gee, you know, it sounds like they really got a good case. And then something like this happens. And you think, come on, what's going on here? Why couldn't you guys have been honest up front and tell us that, hey, this is the best hypothesis we got, but it's not locked in concrete. We don't have all the facts. But nobody wants to be humble about their knowledge. So, uh, they're always revising things. Uh, another person sent this, which was kind of interesting. 
these are two missionaries in Indonesia with New Tribes Mission, and I have always thought that New Tribes Mission, probably of all the missions, has the most advanced concept of this framework. Because these people have really got this framework down. When they preach the gospel, they don't just walk in there and translate the gospel of Mark and talk, give them Jesus stories. They start with Genesis 1 and lead them on through creation and then walk through the scriptures with them. Not every scripture, but they walk through the flow until then they get to the gospel. Well, here are two people narrating this problem they had. They'd gone into this area of Indonesia and there were these people who were very righteous, very moral, very upright. And um, they, they had, uh, how could we teach these people whose social control was so effective there had not been one theft, one divorce, one wife beating, or one adultery episode in the village as long as they, we had known them. They were proud of their superiority over the corrupt and scandalous lives of civilized people. And yet their lives were not as idyllic as it appeared. Feuding and fear permeated their lives, feuding among the clans, fear of unexpected repercussions for the slightest offense against unpredictable spirits. As we learned their language and studied their culture, we often wondered, what name should we use for God? We prayed that God would show us. My husband, Bob, recorded several legends on tape, and after gaining fluency, began writing down the stories they recorded. See, what, we, what do we say was true of all civilizations? If you look into their legends... You look for pieces of that Noahic story that may be hidden down into the bowels of those myths and those legends. Well, this is what this missionary couple did. And when he, uh, so, so anyway, their ancient stories, the story of the snake and the man yield an astounding answer to our prayer. The one who formed our fingers, that's their name for this God that was lost in their memory. The one who formed our fingers had made a beautiful place. And when he made man and woman, he told them they would, could live in the beautiful place. So they lived there, and their fire never went out, and their water flask never went dry. The one who formed our fingers said he was going away, and they must not eat of the free tree of one, uh, fruit of one tree while he was gone. And then he left, and while he was gone, the snake came. Now the man and the snake were brothers. The snake told the man that the fruit was so good that he should try some. And the man ate of the fruit. Then he was afraid of the one who formed our fingers. When the one who formed our fingers returned, he knew right away what had happened. He chased the man away from the beautiful place and said, From now on, the water won't come by itself, the firewood won't come by itself, and the food won't come by itself. The sweat will drip off your jaw and your fingernails won't get long because you will have to work to get food. The people know nothing else about the one who formed our fingers except he wanted somebody to die. There was no amount of ritual that could stop death. He was above all, he was very far away. And then he found another story about the flood. And it turned out that um, um, they assumed God was unknowable, that he exists, is clearly seen, but who has ever seen God? At this point, we introduced the Bible. And we told them the Creator has made himself known. He had spoken to a select few people. The people wrote down the things God the Creator had done in their lives and what he said to them. It is a record of real people and real experiences. The Bible is a chronological historical account. And to teach it, we began at the beginning. First, we told them in the beginning, God made light. And so it's a story of this missionary couple working their way through the framework. That's all they did. They taught the story of the Garden of Eden. We talked to, told the story of the temptation. We told them about the snake and linked it with their own snake and their story so they realized that this wasn't white man's story, but what the white man people, the couple, was telling them was about things that they had hidden away in their own native corpus of legends. See? And so we showed, and then they led up to the gospel and so forth and sin. It took several weeks to teach just the first three chapters of Genesis. 
several weeks. It wasn't a five-minute gospel presentation. These stories struck a chord in the people's hearts. It was also true. They were separated from God. Their life was so hard and it was all Adam's fault. If only Adam hadn't done what he did. People blamed Adam. They were confident if they'd been there, things would have turned out differently. So, we continued through the stories. We told them stories of Cain, of Abel, of Enoch, of Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We stressed God's holiness and, and so on. And then it goes into the book of Exodus and so on. And then we talked about the Ten Commandments. We gave the people an overview of the history of the Jewish nation. We explained God's provision of the sacrificial lamb. We showed them places that where God kept reminding Jews of someone coming who delivers people. Finally, after months of teaching, then we taught them about Jesus. See? See what I'm saying? Didn't talk about Jesus stories up front. And I often wonder whether that's wrong when we even do it with children. We take time to explain history and who God is. Then we get to the Jesus stories. We showed the ways in which the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled and so forth. The people of Simpang heard the message of the Bible in a comprehensive, chronological way. It took months of teaching before they would even admit that they were far from God. Teaching the Bible from the beginning was the only way to build a sure foundation for their faith. They needed to know about God's love and power shown in creation and His holy standards shown in the law. Only then did they understand their need. And so forth. Um, and it tells about what happened in that village. But see, there's a neat story there. Because that's proper, I think, that's proper methodology. And all that couple is doing is doing what we've been doing through the last year and a half. No big, you know, no big hairy thing. It wasn't PhD consultants figuring out how to do this to the, you know, strange culture. They just connected. So, I think that's an excellent illustration. Are there any questions about anything we might have covered tonight or the last couple of times you've thought of at all? Either that or everybody's in la-la land. <laughs> okay, we'll meet again next week.